This is Mike Montero. I'm Erica Hall. This is Larissa Berger. We're broadcasting from Mule Design Studio in beautiful North Beach, San Francisco. This is Voice of Design. New season. We're back on the the Voice of Design. I'm Erica Hall. I'm Larissa Berger. It's a new season both on the calendar and it's a new season on the Voice of Design. And we'll be talking about the practice of design over our next few episodes. But you know, first, I think it's it's we'd like to reflect on the the changing <laughs> of the seasons. You know, it's time for orange foods, which I really enjoy, and yeah, of the pumpkin spice things. Yeah, except maybe the pumpkin spice, any drink, they don't really need pumpkins. Yeah, and I like to I like to go to Trader Joe's and uh, and see what they what they have and I got the pumpkin spice madelines, which Ooh, those sound good. Uh, no. I think cuz cuz as we've learned on the Great British Bake Off, <laughs> adding something like pumpkin to to a dough makes it like heavier and moister and so the flavor was an okay flavor, but I think like I I like Madeleines because they're like eggy little cakes and uh, and I think they just it was like a a not good hybrid. It ended yeah, up yeah they need something brighter. Like you kind of have to stick to the orange or lemon zest. Yeah, and and not lose the, that light eggy dough. So I felt yeah. it got it got dense mm-hmm. and sticky. Mm-hmm. But I think pumpkin pancakes are good. That's a good place for pumpkin. Sure, sure. You got to think about like the temperature. Yeah. The flavors. Pumpkin ice cream. People, people are really into pumpkins here, I've noticed. Um, yeah. there's, a, there's a big uh, pumpkin festival. Oh, yeah. You you had an encounter. Yeah, with- in, in Half Moon Bay. Um, unfortunately, my encounter wasn't actually with the pumpkin festival. <laughs> it was just with the traffic that emptied because apparently the pumpkin festival kind of ended abruptly and everyone got into their cars and in all of these parking lots emptied onto this tiny road at the same time. And so we were in standstill traffic for an hour. I think we less, went less than a mile in an hour. It was it was depraved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the Half Moon Bay Pumpkin Festival is a, a thing I've gone to a couple of times in, in my life out on the coast. And it's extremely popular. And it's in a very, not a huge town, not a huge coastal town. No. On Highway 1, mm-hmm. which is a a tiny windy road. Yeah, Highway One was not prepared for this. No, yeah. no. So you you were just driving back, and we were driving back from. We went to Sand Dollar Beach for the last like surf of the season, I guess, and that was beautiful. And they were like, "Oh, almost home, almost home, just an hour to go." Bam, traffic <laughs> not moving. That that festival would be illegal on the East Coast. Well, why <laughs> why is that? I thought the East Coast liked harvest festivals and cute but, but they planned for traffic i mean um, there were years of investigation about a traffic jam and they would not allow for like a perennial <laughs> a perennial jam up oh, yeah exactly that would be out of the question but it's it's a festival i think yeah we're we're highly tolerant of our our traffic it's just like you know it, the traffic's gonna happen and it's you can't help it 
both my boyfriend and I are from the East Coast. So we were Googling the whole time, like, what kind of accident, what kind of like act of God <laughs> happened? <laughs> Kaiju from the sea have yeah. destroyed the highway. <laughs> no, no, it's face painting yeah. and uh, probably some sort of uh, fried meat kiosks and other adorable family activities that everyone from the Silicon Valley, from San Francisco, from Santa Cruz, all converge on this it's tiny. Ha- it's how town. they get their fall on. It is because ha- how they feel the season. Because we don't I get it. We don't feel the season here. We have to have a, an artificial construct <laughs> of the season because you know in San Francisco it's always light sweater weather. Yeah, that's what I love about it. It's perennial fall. Yeah, yeah. It's always time for an Irish coffee. Totally. Which was invented here at the Buena Vista. Have you had the Irish coffee at yeah. the Buena Vista? Yeah, I've gone there with all the tourists. And it's really amazing to watch them make it because it's so quick. And they have a little depiction of how it was invented. They have to like kind of get the cream moving at a velocity. Whoa, there's physics. There's physics for it to emulsify. But yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I haven't actually been to that that one in a while. But early, soon after I moved to San Francisco, we would go to after work drinks all the time and... um, I would go with my Irish boss and she would order me Irish coffees and it was a, and then I would go home and pass out. Yeah. They're stronger than you think and you yeah. can have many of them. Cause you're awake because of the the coffee. But if you are in San Francisco, uh, the Buena Vista, I would say is a avoid the pumpkin festival. Yeah. That one, that one. Don't ever do that. There's just no reason. Sunday of the year. Now I have that marked in my calendar. Um, avoid. Yeah. Of like the day not to travel South. Would it, like on the East coast, there would be warnings. There would be like, like weeks in advance, you know, you'd get a like alert on Google and it would be like, oh, just so you know, this parade is happening at this time. If you get fucked, it's on you. But no, this time it was there was no information because everybody knows it's just, you know, the it's that time of the year. It's like on the fog, you know, when you know, like, <laughs> oh, this is the time of the year when the sailors return from the sea to terrorize the villagers. <laughs> you know that the suburban parents are going to be driving up in their minivans to terrorize uh, Highway 1. Yeah, basically. It's what now we coin Half Moon Bay as the Salem of the Bay Area. Witches. Yeah. Because yeah. they were really getting their small New England town vibes on. It was kind of amazing. I've never seen that happen here. Yeah. Yeah. It's very contained. Because we gave up and pulled over and then walked through the like aftermath. There trash blowing yeah. around. Trash. Fall. Pumpkins. Le- hay, it looked terrible. Hay bale. Yeah. Hay bale situations yeah. there. Yeah. Just no. like kicked the hay bales to like vent Damn the road you, rage. pumpkins. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm becoming my parents where it's like, oh, is there an event with a lot of people? All right. Make sure we never go near. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Red circle on the map. Yeah. <laughs> no festive. No festive. No festive things. I'm trying to think if there's something else that will happen that I should warn you about, but there's nothing. Yeah. That's a very particular, like that clogs up everything. And it's in a place that's easy to avoid unless you're, you're coming up the highway one. But I think since, um, Folsom fairs over and all the summer festivals are over and all the street fairs are over. Yeah, I think the pumpkin festival is like the last great clusterfuck of the year because the Dickens festival happens. I'm less offended when it's things in the city because you expect things to happen things in the city. Not in the, not in the yeah. bucolic. Oh, we're out in the countryside. If you don't leave the city, then you don't have that. Yeah. But we uh, kept extending our zip car. Like, yeah. Extend oh, 30. yeah. Extend 30, 30 more minutes. Extend 30, 30 more minutes. For um, nothing. Yeah, so you get to pay to sit in traffic. But that's, yeah, that's yeah. cool. That was like a, that's a, it was real, a real experience. Bay Area rite of passage. Totally. So you're, 
you're here now. You're it's like when I went running yeah. through Central Park. <laughs> I live here now. And I was like, oh, I feel yeah, like a New like Yorker because <laughs> I ran around Central Park and I'm like, this is terrible. Everybody just is in a giant crowd running the exact same direction on the same path. Okay. So this is this is what you do. It's yeah. interesting. Regional. It's, it's funny to see traffic happen in California because growing up in New Jersey, it's just such a way of life. Like I walk to school every day with my mom just so that we wouldn't sit in traffic because I grew up right next to the bridge and that was that whole town was just covered in traffic every morning. And then you come to California and you're like, oh, it's not, maybe there's some in the city and like things are getting, we're at a difficult time in San Francisco, but you don't expect outside, you know, it's supposed to be open and free. And so it's yeah, kind clearly of, you haven't spent much time in Los Angeles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we're very, we live in this luxurious, like even though we have traffic now in San Francisco, that's very terrible. It's still, the city's tiny and yeah. you can always just walk and right. it's fine. right. Or scoot or, or bike yeah. or whatever the hell is scoot, the new thing. Yeah. This alternative transportation will be a topic, a topic for another episode. Yeah. But we're, we're, we're here today. There. We're, we're here today to talk about, about practice mm-hmm. and, uh, and the design practice and how the practice of design interacts with the practice of uh, development and building technology, because that's a, a lot of uh, where we're hearing the the trouble and and problems bubble up because you know I I talk to people a lot about you know, we we both talk about strategy and we talk about research and what we always hear is oh but how do we fit those into this inexorable development process right we always hear from people like oh but this is a delivery focused organization how yeah. do we fit things like thinking or asking questions or longer range planning into this machine. And I think we particularly get caught in those conversations, which is which is neat actually, because we are so research focused. Mm-hmm. And I think that often people imagine that research is kind of the thing that will pull them out of that hell. <laughs> you know, like kind of like being in a traffic jam, like whatever information that just exists in the world, like you can kind of stomach the different pace that development might force because you're like, oh, well, it's going to go back to research or we're going to know something or we're going to... And that's going to save us from everything. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's, I was just having this conversation with somebody about, you know, oh, if we only had the data, like we're in a big organization that doesn't really do any customer research, shockingly will not reveal the name of the business, but it was, it, it was and was not shocking that they don't do customer research and they're trying to figure out how to be a more customer centric organization. And they were looking for a study that would just somehow the results of this study would be so useful or glamorous or exciting or would prove a point such that, oh, now we have the data to show that we should really just change a lot of things about our process. and Yeah, they want like foundational information that will pull them out of their bullshit, that will just kind of make everyone suddenly like rise out of their little turf war battles. And, and I think to some extent, having a research practice can do that. But where this gets lost is that it's just the information. It's like, oh, well, who has the right information? And right. how do we share better information? And how do we keep people from projecting their bias onto the information? Well, if the research happens more 
in, in more of a pure way. Yeah, every, everybody's looking for the, the data that will save them or point the way, the ultimate truth. And I think if there's one thing <laughs> we found, not only in design and technology, but in the wider world, is that facts don't matter unless the culture is prepared to receive those facts. And I think that is such a hard truth for people who are, who do, you know, believe in critical thinking or do want to work in an evidence-based way. When you go to them and say, well, it doesn't matter how good your evidence is. First, you have to fix the culture. Then you can use data to improve that culture. But first you have to create this basis of collaboration and asking questions and mutually supporting each other and feeling this rapport and not feeling in competition. Because if people are in competition with one another, as they often are in organizations, you know, whether it's people on the same team looking to get a promotion or whether it's, you know, the design team versus the development team looking to have more sway in how decisions are made. Everybody's looking for the fact that will show that they're right, but the fact doesn't matter until you have the politics sorted out. And that, yeah, that's troubling. And that's what we've found yeah. a lot in our work. And people are really troubled also by communication being part of the work. Yeah. I, I think that's something that it's, really such a benefit. And it was a benefit to my growth to get for free at Mule in the sense of like, we just, we know that spending time on figuring out how to say something is worthwhile. And Mm -hmm. I feel like in a lot of work cultures, individual contributors don't get that space. Um, So they're actually just kind of um, spinning their wheels to a new solution when the right solution might be in their hands but they have to just figure out how to communicate about it differently. And when I look at my like past work, it's that's always surprising to me that actually the solution was very within reach, <laughs> was not <laughs> at all the hard part of the problem. I was just like too young to really know how to say it the right way, or I was really just taking on all of the feedback I was getting and like trying to show that in the product or, you know, all of these different ways um, that you have of reacting to these scenarios because there's just not a healthy practice in place. And it's not, it's not really about the world and finding the truth in the world. It's actually impedance matching to your audience. Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago, someone literally, a woman literally knocked on the door of the studio and she said, hi, do you have a few minutes? I'm changing careers. And I just wanted to ask you some questions. And I thought this was amazing that she would have the wherewithal to just show up at the door of a design studio and say, hi, I'm a social worker and I'm taking classes and I want to I want to get into the design field. And I'm like, wow, sure. That took so much guts to just show up. I'll sit down and talk to you. And I said, well, why are you interested in changing careers? And she said, well, because I want to work in design because then if you just do good design work, it's self-evident that the work is good and you don't have to have annoying arguments. And I was like, oh, sweetie, oh. <laughs> oh, I've got some bad news for you. And I, I tried to be just not totally negative, but also it's supportive and like point her in the right direction and and answer her questions. But I think that has been, I think that's something that's, that people have come to realize isn't the case that you really do have to be able to provide rationale for all your decisions and bring people along and tell a good story because good design is not self-evident. 
and making good design decisions isn't even necessarily something people see as uh, in the best interest of their business, even though it's like, oh, we know that like people talk about it a lot, like making the case for design. I hope that we're almost on the verge of seeing communication skills as not just something that makes the work uh, easier or more effective, but is a core part of the work. And I think part of the problem, something that we we talk about is the false dichotomy between so-called um, hard skills and soft skills, which is something that came out of the military. And just they started with like, oh, what are skills you can measure? Those are hard skills. And then what are the ones you can't measure? Then they're like, oh, let's call those soft skills. And then that made it really easy to dismiss. And yeah, like you were saying at Mule, when people come in and work with us, working uh, like on the communication and giving direction about the communication is as much a part of the iterations as say, you know, working with designers, you know, using typography, you know, or layout or interaction design or any of those things. It's like, oh, how do you communicate about the work? And people do take that quite personally. And so we have over the years had uh, some really difficult conversations with people who say, well, that's my communication style. You're talking about me as a person. You're not talking about my work. And in the context of design consulting, the way you communicate about decisions and the way you share information is very much a part of the work. And so we've had to really get people out of their comfort zones on that. Yeah. I know it's a very complex topic, but if someone's listening and they're they're like, yeah, totally. We're doing, yeah, I don't want that. I, I, want, I want to have evidence-based um, decision-making as part of our design culture. And I, I see a lot of times this kind of difficulty with communication, like what, what can they do? <laughs> Step one. Mm-hmm. And I think the first, the impulse that people have is to go out again and find some truth and then try to talk people into their truth. This is always the way people want to start. It's like, okay, I find the evidence and then I convince somebody. And I think one of the m- most challenging concepts to get across, especially when we do our research workshops, is that the way you win an argument is not by arguing in a straightforward way, the same way that the way you learn people, that you learn about people is not about asking them, you know, the directly the questions you want to know about people, that mm-hmm. it takes a little bit more strategic thinking. And so if you want to change your culture, the first thing, or win an argument, the first thing you have to do is ask questions in order to convince somebody. And that's not only counterintuitive, it's really unsatisfying and it's sometimes very politically dangerous to start asking questions. But before you can change anything about how the design practice is is occurring at an organization, you have to say, why do we do things the way we do them? Like even before you say what's wrong with them, you have to say, okay, looking at the current state, why do we make decisions like this? Why do we have meetings like this? And even just in terms of how people communicate about the work, that will tell you why the work might not be as strong as it could be. Yeah. And I think this especially applies because lots of people are doing research for tools for internal processes. Mm -hmm. So they're having to learn like, okay, this part of the business talks to this part of the business and produces this form. But like you're saying, they don't necessarily ask why does this conversation happen? Why does this mm-hmm. form need to exist? There's no clear goal. And yeah. so they end up building a lot of like middleware software that is expensive to maintain, that doesn't really have a point. And it's easy for businesses to kind of like slash those projects. Yeah. And because the point is always how do we insert a tool into a conversation? Right. Because 
everybody's trying to avoid having these conversations with each other. <laughs> and and they find they're like, oh, what's what practice are we doing? And they don't ask, well, why do we do that? And is it helping achieve our goal? But they're like, oh, what practice are we doing? And can we use a tool to make our current practice more efficient? And instead of saying, oh, why are we doing it this way? And are those really, really good reasons? And one of the most common practices, which just, it still blows my mind, like we go in and we talk to people about how they make their design decisions. And they'll say, well, the designer makes a comp or some form of documentation. Like I've heard this again and again, or, or they'll build a prototype. And then what they will do is they will send a link to that artifact to every decision maker. And the decision maker has maybe a deadline to respond, but each person who needs to give input will on their own time and in their own like room, or maybe it's like two in the morning, or maybe it's like right before dinner, after they put the kids to bed or because, you know, everybody has meetings all day, so they don't actually do their work during, you know, conventional work hours. And then they'll look at a thing and they'll come up with some response and send the response in email. And then it's up to the person who created that artifact or a, you know, product manager or project manager to comb through all that feedback and try to reconcile it. And this happens instead of just getting everybody in a room and facilitating a really productive discussion because people don't want to talk to each other or don't know how to talk to each other because like weird power dynamics happen. Or they use the like level of fidelity of the artifact as the gating yeah. object to getting people in the room. So it's like, well, we'll get people in the room, but only once we're at V2 or only once we have, we, we have really have something to show them. Right. Because right. we hear that. We've even heard that a lot with our clients about like, oh, we don't want to involve people until we, we we're far along. But then once you're far along, there's so much like sunk cost bias that nobody wants to reopen decisions. Mm-hmm. So it's way better to to get people in a room and talk about like not even talk about an artifact, really talk about, you know, the concept itself and make sure the concept is strong before creating any artifacts around it. But you get all this pushback about, well, everybody's busy, right? There's So there's all these bad practices that like reinforce other bad practices. Like the one yeah. like, oh, we're all in meetings all the time. So we can't have another meeting because they define all meetings as the, as the same thing. Or like everybody's just so busy that we can't get them all together. And this is the only way to do it. And then bad things happen because of that. And they don't think they're like, oh, why is the design work you know, not as strong as it could be, or why are the designers miserable? And it all has to do with these process things that have been defined as, oh, just the way that we work, not not actually part of designing, which is really what they are. Because the thing that we talk about a lot is design. Every design project is really a series of decisions. And it's not the quality of the artifacts, it's the quality of the decision-making. And that is such an unsatisfying answer for people. Like it's even more unsatisfying than hearing like, oh, it depends. Like what's the answer? It depends. And it's like, oh, how do you get good design? Well, you figure out how to make good decisions. And it's like, meh, there's no app for that. Yeah. And I think that part of what's happening is we're prioritizing good design process based upon how it works with engineering. And that seems really fraught because as companies are changing right now, they're actually dependent, I've noticed more and more, on the design than they are on the engineering. Because a lot of the engineering that like made the first, you know, that made Wikipedia or that made like these like beginning websites successful is 
pretty easy now. It's not so costly yeah. and, and difficult to make, um, but we're still kind of pushing design into the engineering forms. So like in engineering, for instance, you used to kind of have a document-based culture like you're describing, um, but then practices emerged because it was clear that that wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that's what that's why Agile was so great and such yeah. a, a revolution because it wasn't about, they said it wasn't about the documentation, it was about shipping working software which was a huge, amazing shift that made making software a much more pleasant and productive process. And it was tough to get people to not make the document because that's more comfortable work. Mm-hmm. When I uh, was an engineer at Pivotal Labs, we had only index cards at our workstations because they, if you were going to write more than what you could fit on an index card, it belonged in the story because other people should need to know that so that they could do that work as well. So there was like stuff even in the environment to force people to not just like keep knowledge to themselves, to not just create a document, um, but to be constantly sharing. And pairing, that pairing culture kind of did emerge from like, hey, how come we're making stuff and then throwing it in code review and then pushing it back out and then debating about that? And that's not to say that like there's any one process that fixes this, but I've seen in engineering a lot how there's a reaction to exactly what you're describing. But from what I've seen of design cultures, that's not really the case. Um, And so designers still can't have that conversation until they have the artifact because that then gets pinned to the story, gets built into the software, and then Mm -hmm. the software will exist. Um, But they, they desperately need those like kind of lower resolution Um, artifacts and ways to aid a discussion so that they can kind of be ahead without building anything. Yeah, I I think index cards are the best design, thinking, writing, anything tool. Like index cards over (laughs) post-its, for sure. But you still have to like be in a room with people, which is terrifying instead of like being, having your your work mediated through software. Yeah, it's interesting because I think design practice is lagging in terms of becoming a a truly collaborative practice because there's still, and I think writing is the same, uh, even though I think what we think of as design is like you say design and always gets, um, you know, interpreted as like, oh, we're talking about the visual design, but I'd say that interaction design is probably the furthest along in being a collaborative practice. And like Cooper did a lot with this where they'd have like, uh, they would do pair interaction design. Mm-hmm. And that's a really a cool practice because like it was it was essentially like one person would be more of the visual thinker and one person would be more of the verbal thinker. And and then they'd work together because you'd need all of that. And you'd need that in sort of conversation with itself to have a good design practice. But I'd say the the more the design that comes more out of graphic design and then the design that comes more out of traditional writing those practices still are kind of attached to the idea that there's, oh, there's a person who has skills as an individual who has creative skills who seems a little bit magical. And it's up to that person with their creative intellect and skills to like go off and have great ideas, whether visually or in words, and then bring them back to the team. And I think we have to break that down as much as Agile broke down the software process. Mm -hmm. 
because we've even talked to, you know, and we've um, gone in organizations and, and worked with their communications teams, which is something we do. Like the communications team is often the team we're working with in our design work. And sometimes there are people on the team who are like, yeah, I'm really ready to be in the room and fully collaborate and, you know, talk about using language uh, in interactive experiences in a really collaborative manner. And then there are people who say no. And I've, I've heard this in multiple organizations in wildly different industries where the writers will say like, no, I have to go off and digest the information individually and I have to come up with a draft and I have to come back and present my draft. And then they pass a draft around and they pass a document around for feedback, which is the antithesis of an interactive design process. And you have to work interactively with people if you're trying to create something for people out in the world to interact with. Or else if you have a documentation-based process, you're going to end up with things that feel a lot more like, oh, this organization has assembled a series of documents for me to interact with in a very time-consuming manner, as opposed to something that feels like it was made by humans and like it's a really interactive thing. Yeah, it's it's kind of like when you have a document-based culture within an organization, you're actually optimizing for the wrong thing. And it's the mm -hmm. riskier, it's actually yeah. the riskier choice, even though it feels safer. I mean, to me, it's always kind of like having perfect notes, mm -hmm. but then failing the class. <laughs> That's uh, a good analogy. <laughs> because you can get really stuck thinking through like, well, if I just present the information really beautifully... Um, mm -hmm. It must work together somehow. But there are going to be kind of like leaps and jumps. I mean, the world is complicated. But I think what's happening is the the reason people do that and the reason uh, why, you know, writers and designers still feel more comfortable in this artifact and documentation based process is because of the issue of credit. Yeah. And, and they're afraid. They don't want the bad decision to be their fault. Yeah. And they want to show their work. Right. Mm -hmm, they want to mm -hmm. it's like doing an assignment and getting a grade on the assignment like organizations are still talking about collaboration, but rewarding individual contributions. And there is no such thing in like complex systems design as an individual contribution. You can't really just point to one person and say, oh, that person contributed value apart from the team. And I think stepping away from that will make for better design and healthier teams, but it's really hard. So any individual wants to have like, oh, I designed this, I wrote this all on my own so I can get rewarded for that. Because if we just sit in a room and solve a problem together, how do we know who to reward for that, right? If it's a real team effort and not a lot of organizations, I found even to this day, rewarding team outcomes instead of like an individual had an idea and has authorship over that or an individual has authorship over some document. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as an individual contributor, when you place the credit on the team, it's tough because it feels like you're missing an opportunity to claim credit for your own work. Mm -hmm. But I actually think of it now, and I tell young designers this, as it's almost like you're buying insurance. <laughs> Because if you give credit to the team and you're good at being on the team, then it's more likely you're going to be on another successful team. Mm -hmm. And the people that kind of like claim the credit for themselves, maybe this is overly optimistic, but I feel like over time you can kind of see like, unless they too make that shift, people sense it and mm -hmm. 
they'll have like that one project to point to. I mean, this even happens like absent of of money and absent of companies. I've been on like hackathons where <laughs> this is the case and um, one person is grabbing all the credit, but then that's the only project that they have as opposed to kind of keeping in mind like, oh, it takes it takes lots of lots of contributors. I mean, in, damn, like even in music, this is a huge, <laughs> this is a huge thing. And, yeah. and you can see these like really dysfunctional groups um, that overly reward uh, mm-hmm. like talent or individual contribution or, mm-hmm. or soloists. Um, when I've played in orchestras, it would always be before the performance, oh, we're so excited to have this guest artist and they're so gifted and they're so talented. And, you know, they, they've just, Deigned us like worthy of their presence <laughs> and you know everyone go out there and have a great time and then when I moved to kind of different musical traditions the speech before the performance was like thank you for loading the truck and thank you for grabbing and all wow. of the work that actually went into the production yeah. and those performances were better people were playing together because mm-hmm what had been awarded was was actually all the work that may not one-to-one be seen by the audience, but is important to put on the show. Yeah. Yeah. And that whole theme of like what work is recognized is a huge, like this is also something we we see a lot with organizations we work with, especially if we're you know, talking about issues of, of gender bias. It's not that people are saying outrageously sexist things or taking credit for people's ideas, but then there's work that needs to be done that is invisible and there's work that is recognized and prioritized. And then it just so happens because of the structure of the organization and the people who've been working there and making decisions historically that the invisible work falls towards underrepresented people. Mm-hmm. And then that you know has this whole cascading effect and, and things like that. And I think that's also a problem when we go back to the idea of it, it, organizations who are really like, okay, we have to adopt Agile and adopt Agile at scale in the enterprise, which is a, a huge thing. And that's their big drive because if you have teams that are produced, that are set up around a software development process, the output is software and that's visible. And then everything else that goes into that, that precedes the building of the thing tends to be less visible and has to fit itself around a process for making software. Yeah. Yeah. And the the kind of holds for scaling that area of inquiry or area that you're trying to address with your software is all like the holds that are are engineering requirements for building something. So like the milestone is like engineering based and how mm-hmm. the sausage gets made based as opposed to customer value based. Yeah, customer value and outcome, right? Because if if you have a bad outcome, it doesn't matter how much software you made. And in fact, it's bad because if you have a bad outcome and you invested all of this time, it's like you're, we always talk about setting fire to big piles of money. And you can feel really productive and it's terrible if you, and, and a lot of organizations still do this, They'll make a lot of stuff and then they'll do, you know, what they call is like validation. That'll be like the only anything even remotely like research they do is like, well, we'll make a prototype and then we'll validate our assumptions. But really, if the train has been chugging out of the station for that long, people aren't going to stop it. And they'll be like, oh, well, you know, they'll they'll 
confirmation bias, the, the results of whatever they find. And like, well, we've, we've got to launch it. And then you'll have some very, very expensive findings in the form of, you know, customer service or a lack of product adoption or something like that. But they feel productive because they've, they've made a lot of stuff and people have this terror of pausing for thinking or for asking questions because they say things like, but we have, you know, we have developers with nothing to do. Mm -hmm. And that, that threat of like, okay, we've got the machine. We've got to keep stoking the machine with design for the developers to build because the worst thing is to have developers just like sitting around as though, as though the developers cannot participate in other forms of problem solving. Right. Yeah. Without actually just making code. It's scary to them to have these like very expensive resources just sitting latent. That's actually based and we don't know how to sell software yet quite. I think, yeah, I think I'm going to stand by that. Um, So it ends up always being kind of labor based. So a programmer is valuable because they're spending that labor doing Mm -hmm. that expensive thing. Um, That was actually something that was always tough at Pivotal. And what I admired about the culture that they created there was that it wasn't about how many lines you had written in the day. And I think that took some time to actually um, Mm -hmm. get people behind the idea of like, you were going to take two programmers, not just one, two, Mm -hmm. and they might only produce I don't know, 10 lines in an afternoon, which, you know, is kind of blasphemous to the previous culture. But, you know, I I think that's why software is kind of this interesting critique of (laughs) industrialism and production. I mean, that's kind of a bigger topic, but um, because it's forcing back craft and that can't just be production-based. That's not just like I made, you know, 10 items today and yeah. that's my per- production mm-hmm. value it it actually um, goes deeper than that because as the surface area of software increases you know the number of bugs increase the number mm-hmm. of maintenance costs like you're you're taking on real issues real yeah uh, real problems with that yeah so i think i think the problem the part of the problem that the process has solved is the quality of the software for a certain definition of quality. But then you say, well, that has to fit into the success of the overall outcome and the product. And if you just have teams making like highly functional software in a vacuum, what you end up with is like, you might not be solving a problem. So there's no point to what you're doing. And the whole question is like, oh, how do we make sure that, any line of code that anybody's writing is helping to solve the bigger problem. And the only way to do that is by investing in uh, the goal setting, in the problem definition. And that requires taking time. And it does take time to understand the business and the business model and the business needs, understand the market and the competitive landscape, understand particularly like the context of the people who you are seeing as the the customers for that software. And so there's all this stuff around it that just, it does take time to understand. And all of that should happen before people write lines of code to right. solve that problem. Right. But that that's a hard 
thing for a lot of organizations because again, they're like, oh, but we're a delivery driven organization. And that just sounds like we're, we do things for no reason because that makes us feel good. Or they, or they feel like if they've got the machine kind of oiled up and they're, they're mm-hmm. churning, that they'll be able to react. But being able to react to things that happen as they come is not a substitute for kind of understanding and having a model of the world first. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel like we're using technology, like, still, even though we're so advanced, in ways that are kind of still really short of the promise. Because it's like a, a levered automation or it's some template that we're trying to make generic. Yeah, the idea that software is software, right? Especially now that we're talking more about conversational design and the fact that we have so many ways in so many modes using so many devices to solve a customer problem or to solve like a, a real world problem people still fixate on making one type of thing. So I think one of the most important and I'd say terrifying exercises is before starting to sketch or build or anything to really step back and say, what problem are we trying to solve and what value are we trying to deliver and what value are we trying to get back and and really think through what form that interface is going to take. Yeah. Because maybe the best way to, to solve a problem is just with a website, right? Because right now we're at the point where like processing power is advanced to a certain degree. Uh, cloud storage is, is a thing. You know, machine learning's a thing. And it's like, oh, let's the best way to solve a problem for a person in the world or for a, a system is with the most advanced technology. But we haven't exhausted the uses of things that that I think a lot of business people and designers and technologists now think is really boring. And so it's like, oh, let's move on to the next thing without really thinking, well, what's the most effective and what's the thing that people really actually want to do and want to use and are excited about, right? It's this drive for like the novel and for solving the complex designer engineering problem rather than the important business or society or human problem. Yeah. And it's a shame that engineers are so often kept out of these conversations because I think they're particularly adept at facilitating them when it comes to, you know, there's lots of technical discovery that happens Yeah, um, because businesses allow those conversations to happen because they're, they're saving time, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually preventing real risk of, you know, investing in the wrong I don't know, like API or backend system that then would actually cost a level of effort mm-hmm. down the road. But there's not a similar prioritization of like, well, which problem are we solving now? Um, and I think that too many companies are still prioritizing um, what to build based upon engineering complexity or perceived level of effort and not based upon um, what is the greatest risk to our business? What makes us the most different? And if you can prioritize in, in that way and do research al- along that line, I think you will see better results. And <clears throat> I, yeah, I, honestly, I would just have engineers like lead that facilitation mm-hmm. and then have the people with that knowledge um, participate because that structure is really helpful. Yeah. And it just takes the discipline for an organization to say that an engineer who is not writing code is not therefore idle. 
right? That there's expertise. It's like, if you, we don't talk enough about the value of not just doing the good thing, but preventing the bad thing or preventing the risk or preventing the waste, right? It's really hard to like sit with that and say, well, we're doing something that doesn't conform to our notions of productivity, but will actually decrease risk and generate value. Like that takes a huge amount of discipline. Yeah. One of the the stupidest things that I heard in the last week was that like humans don't change. So if you just <laughs> understand some things about them, you'll be set. And it's, it's just so not true. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not. Well, it's like maybe maybe the the goal is to say like human nature yeah doesn't change yeah it's true it's like human nature <laughs> doesn't change but the context yes, exactly. around the humans is constantly changing and what environmental factors to respond to are constantly changing and that's what you have to understand so it's like oh yeah and i think that's the kind of sentiment where people think oh if we do like one study and we understand our customers or we understand our users then we can be done for that reason as opposed to, wow, we have to keep talking to people because the people might not change. Right. But the circumstances are, wow, are they changing? It feels like on a minute to minute basis, the, yeah. the information that people have to respond to, the risks people perceive, like what's going on economically, the choices people have, that's always changing. And so when you're learning about people, and I think that brings up a really, really good point, in, in why the, why qualitative research is so important as opposed to just doing something like, oh, we just ask people and we just run these surveys, is you really, the point is not to understand the person in isolation. The point is to understand the context from that person's perspective. Yep. And, and I, think, I think the only way that um, seeps in into the practice of um, most places that are just doing user testing, for instance, or just running surveys, is that they actually put that um, on the individual that they're interviewing. So they're yeah. only receiving the lens of that context based upon somebody being that self-aware yeah. saying like, oh, I I decided to get a Zipcar account because I cannot afford a car. Um, but, yeah. you know, that person doesn't control the rental prices of San Francisco yeah. that may lead them to not afford a car because there is not an absolute when it comes to affording a car, that right. same person, when you put them in another environment, may perfectly well afford a car. And yeah. so the fact that Zipcar requires the environment of like people choosing to live in cities to mm-hmm. exist to, is not a discredit to its existence. It yeah. actually makes it awesome. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you have to, <clears throat> you have to, you know, interview people and ask them questions, but you also have to do just other research about the environment that people are in and about the other, the systems that people are interacting with because people are really bad at self-reporting their motivations. This is why all those forward-looking speculative questions like how likely are you to buy something or how likely are you to recommend something to somebody are complete garbage because nobody is good at predicting their own behavior or reporting behavioral probabilities for themselves. Like nobody can do that. Like this is actually something machines are good at, right? Machines can look at if algorithms are set up correctly, machines can look at historical data and make predictions based on that data. And some of those predictions can be pretty good, but sometimes, and this goes back to like wanting to find that 
one-size-fits-all kind of generic process or generic method. And the fact you can't, because it all goes back to uh, what value are you trying to deliver in what context, uh, you know, at what time with all these variables. Yeah, this is also why I think it's it's so upsetting when startups kind of suspend price um, because they're venture funded. They don't have yeah. to make money on the atomic like exchange, um, but it really actually robs them f- from learning a lot about their customer yeah. because, you know, you might even go on a product website and it takes several clicks to even see like, what is this priced at? Because they want to suspend um, a customer's impulse to compare that. But that's actually a really important marker of the environment. So you're kind of losing a very valuable design constraint when you make that kind of business decision. I I, I think it impacts the design, even though it is a business decision. Yeah. And I I think a a whole topic for, for another day is the high cost of free. Right. Mm-hmm. Because venture backed like software companies have, you know, been focused on growth, like user base, like active, like it's monthly u- active user growth, regardless of the price that then they're like, oh, well, a lot of people use this, but people expect it to be free. And so we're just going to have to sell people's data. And like, that's the value we get back or we're going to have to advertise to them. Like that's created the world we're in where people don't have the option because, you know, you talk to people anecdotally and a lot of people would like the option to pay directly for some value they receive as opposed to participating in a system where it's ostensibly free, but there are all of these other costs. Like, you know, if you try to enjoy any editorial content, online, you see the high cost, uh, which you're not paying directly, but it's like, oh, I'm seeing ads for that same pair of shoes like pop up over and over again. And I'm seeing really crappy affiliate links jammed into the high quality journalism and the whole experience of trying to inform yourself or trying to enjoy, you know, reading a piece of literary nonfiction online or, you know, even just, you know, reading a site about fashion tips or something is so painful now because of that. So we're paying this enormous cost in terms of our attention and our anxiety level and, you know, even our society in terms of all of the the incentives for disseminating uh, counterfactual, well, it's not counterfactual information, maybe but all this stuff, all this stuff's happening because we're not pricing things appropriately. Mm-hmm. So there's another cost that like the cost can has been kicked down the road. So that's, but that's something else that figures into the the design practice we're talking about because the practice has to include and has to begin with that exchange of value or else all of your effort as a designer is going to end up being corrupted by the the marketplace that it's, entering into. Yeah. And that that is actually like where we start with a design practice, really understanding like what is the business value that's mm-hmm. being created? What is the exchange that's yeah. happening? Yeah. Because when designers talk about research, right? Because uh, one of the big things we do is we sort of proselytize for research and more for like evidence-based design because we don't want research for its own sake. We want, you know, good design decisions made. A lot of designers, even when they're enthusiastic about like, oh, I want to make sure I'm gathering the right evidence, really just focus on like uh, user research. Like they will define research 
as user research or talk about any sort of information gathering, you know, as user research. And the place to start is understanding the the business the, or the organization before anything else. So you really get a sense of like, oh, what problem are we defining to solve to generate value for the business? And you have to do that most of the time before you look at the people, right? You have to understand the business. If you're really starting in like a blue sky, green field, whatever, maybe it's like, oh, we're trying to find a problem to solve to form a business. Yeah, then you start with the people. But for most designers, they're working in organizations that have a sort of set of levers and dials set up already. It's like, oh, we are in this business. We have this capacity. Uh, We have this domain knowledge. And you have to understand the context that you're working in as a designer so you can make choices that benefit the business by, you know, serving that user or customer and understand the whole societal thing around that. So you're not like, oh, I'm working for a business that only makes money by doing terrible things to the world. I know all these big issues, but I think the big, the objections to entering into these sort of conversations are always like, oh, we don't have time to go there. But really, most of the time with most teams I've seen, if you really got the right people in the room for like an hour, you could sort this stuff out. But the conversations are just too terrifying. Yeah, you can start really simple. You know, yeah. Just getting aligned on, I mean, you can really use whatever framework you want to. You can use jobs to be done. You can use, mm-hmm. what are some of the other ones? I mean, it really just comes down to like what, outcome are we are we looking for right yeah. and sometimes they're like oh we want kpis and like anything that like once you start using an acronym you're in a culture that i don't want to be a part of right or it's a like, metric that creates a metric a metric that creates yeah. a metric yeah yeah anytime you're in the world of acronyms like kpis or nps i really feel like that's a, a, a path where you start like justifying you just start using those metrics to justify whatever you're doing for some other reason so it's like what outcome like use plain language in your work like what outcome are we going for what are our goals and then backing from that into what do we need to do to achieve our goals and how do we know when we're successful and having those sorts of conversations just in plain language in a room and then then very quickly it becomes clear what you actually need to know and then you can talk about how you need to know it and how you can best use your resources to go about solving that problem and it really is a series of very simple discussions but a lot of process and documentation ends up getting padded around these sorts of really simple conversations because organizations are like hierarchical and fearful and political. Yeah. And dogma. There's so much like best practices. So, you know, a team will say, okay, this is our objective. This is the outcome. Oh, but we need this because it's the best practice. And it's like, no, just drop it. Yeah. Those, you know, use the tools as tools. If the best practice guides you, then use it. And as soon as it stops, then stop using it. Yeah. But it really... People need to be given that permission because, I mean, I've had, I've, I've been in iterations of a design where my boss has been like, ah, but we're missing X, Y, you know, we don't have another CTA there. It's like, well, what is the job of the CTA? Yeah. To get somebody to do something. Maybe that doesn't have to happen. Yeah. Maybe that's not actually helping us meet our goal. It's just like, oh, put a, put a thing there. There's no thing there. The design system says we need a thing there. Yeah. And I was like, why do we need a thing there? Yeah. Cause it all, cause the whole reason to have a design practice and process at all is to bring new, better things into the world. But it's so easy to just define your job as following 
the process and following the practice because it's easier. Everybody wants to find the habit, right? The autopilot, the thing to be doing, as opposed to constantly being in that world of thinking critically about things because there's a concern about, oh, if we spend too much time thinking, then we'll be in a world of doubt and we won't actually be able to make decisions. So you want to like turn off that part of everybody's brain. But really, you you can't. You can't. You always have to be like if you know your goal, if you know what outcome you're going for, then you can use that to stay on track and keep efficient and say, well, that discussion isn't part of what we're trying to achieve and do it that way. But you can't just say, oh, we can't question why we're doing something because then you just do the thing. And then a year later, you have a thing that nobody needs and you've set fire to a lot of time and money. And we have an internet with a lot of terrible pop-ups on it that we can't (laughs) back out of because everybody expects everything to be free. Yep. Nothing is free. Nothing is free. So if you start with the intention, you have to start intentionally who's paying how much for what. Yeah. Then then you sidestep that. Yeah. So um, maybe we should bring this back around to like a a productive place for people, which is like, so when you're in your own organization, Mm -hmm. back to that question of what, what's, what's the step one to improve your design practice. And it really is looking at what you're currently doing, why you're doing it that way and looking at how you make decisions. Like this is the first most important step to improving anything is to say, okay, if we're trying to achieve a goal, You have to make decisions to achieve that goal. Who's involved? Why are they involved? How are they giving input? How do they make decisions? And only then I'd say, can you understand what, if anything, needs to change? But this can be a really uncomfortable conversation for people. Yeah, definitely. And set the right things to autopilot, you know? It helps to have processes to automate things, but make sure that you're not automating the things that you should be thinking about, you know? So you can kind of have a process to trade off, like who takes notes? Yeah. So that you don't fight about that and spend precious mental Mm -hmm. energy on that. That can certainly be a routine, but you don't want to make a routine out of things that are real decisions that will impact the design. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for joining us. And if you have any questions, comments, follow up, tweet at us. Yeah. At VOD underscore rocks on Twitter. Twitter. Or VOD rocks at muledesign.com. I should know our email address at this point. Yeah, but just tweet at us. It's easier. really. I don't want to check a separate email. Email is terrible. Email's over. We're still on the Twitters. We're still on the Twitter. All right. All right. Until next time. Until next time.